Thank you, choir. You always do a great job setting the table for us to come and hear God's Word. If you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 21. If you don't know where that is, it's the last book of the Bible. Go to the very back and very last two chapters. This morning we want to read part of uh, two chapters, chapter 21 and chapter 22. Before I read them, let me just say a word about uh, our series has been on defiant hope. Hope that fights back. Hope that fights against discouragement and fights against depression and despair. Uh, work, uh, hope that fights against a pessimistic, cynical view of the world and believes that God is going to have his way in the end. And we call it defying hope because sometimes hope is not what's in our heart and we have to fight for it by uh, meditating on the promises of God and praying and asking God to work it in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Revelation, you're going to see images, and they're throughout the book of Revelation, they're apocalyptic literature. And with apocalyptic literature, you have a description of the end of the world in various images. And those images are not to be taken literally. Uh, They're to be taken most of the time figuratively. C.S. Lewis says this, There's no need to be worried by people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying, Who wants to spend eternity playing a harp? The answer to such people is if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. Any scriptural imagery, harps, crowns, gold, is of course a merely symbolic attempt to express the inexpressible. People who take these symbols literally might as well think that when Christ told us to be innocent like doves, he also meant that we should lay eggs. C.S. Lewis had a great way of saying things, and so we'll come up with some images in this passage and some images throughout the book, but it's, uh, they're images that point to a heavenly reality. Look at Revelation 21 and 1 through 8, and then we'll do uh, Revelation 22, uh, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and he himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the older order of things has passed away. He who is seated on his throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the springs of the water of life. But those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is a second death. 
then verse 20, uh, verse 1 of chapter 22. Uh, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in that city, and His servants will serve Him. And they will see His face, and His name will be on their forehead. There will be no more night. There will be no need for the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord our God will give them light and will reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Work in our hearts, O God, hope, hope of defiant hope, a hope not only that things will work out well, not only do you cause all things to work together for the good of those who love you, those who are called according to your purpose, they'll work out uh, good for all eternity. So help us as we meditate on heaven even today, and we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. There was an English Reformed pastor by the name of Richard Baxter. And Richard Baxter wrote a book entitled The Reformed Pastor, but although he was a very uh, productive uh, pastor, preacher, he was also a very sickly guy. He had headaches and nosebleeds and gallstones and, and kidney stones and digestion problems, and he was constantly sick, but he believed that at times the Lord had miraculously healed him. And he was uh, on his deathbed when he was 35. And while he was on his deathbed, he started meditating on heaven, and he did that for 30 minutes every day. And he wrote down what he thought about it, and he turned that into a book after he recovered, miraculously, The Saint's Everlasting Rest, because he had meditated on heaven. Now, when's the last time you meditated on heaven? Well, let me ask you this. When's the last time you thought about heaven? Maybe the last funeral you went to? Maybe the last time you had to say goodbye to a loved one or something? You know, we just don't ponder heaven very much. And most of us would say, you know, when we think about heaven, it seems kind of, you know, do we do this all the time? And the answer is, of course not that there's a new heaven and a new earth, and it will be uh, a lot like this one, but yet redeemed and better and more glorious. The book of Revelation was basically written to give people a defiant hope. They were about to face, under the new emperor, they were about to face the most difficult trials that Christians had ever faced. They would be burned as lanterns at the, at the parties of the king. They would be lined up as you entered into the city of Rome, crucified because they would try to do away with the Christians. And what John was doing by the grace of God and in the wisdom of God, he was preparing these people for what lay ahead of them, that they could be, quote, overcomers. And the word overcomers or conquerors mentioned throughout the book of Revelation simply means people who persevered and kept their faith even to the very end, even if it meant martyrdom. This book was written to give them hope that there is a heaven and there is a hell. 
Now, when we talk about heaven, I want you to listen carefully. We always have to make a distinction that when we die, our body is separated from our soul. Our soul goes to be with God. It's immediately uh, purified, glorified, but our bodies rest in the grave until the resurrection. And that is heaven. But what is this is talking about, this is talking about the new heaven and the new earth is when Jesus returns and our bodies rise physically to meet Jesus in the air and we live on this new heaven and new earth. That's what this is talking about. This is talking about the end of times, the telos, the end goal that God is working for, to have a people, have a place, have a sphere where he can worship them, where they can be worshiping God without sin or hesitation. And so you talk about heaven, a new heaven and a new earth. I want to mention just three things quickly. One is hope. We hope that all things will become new. When I say hope, we mean certainty. We hope for things, the old things to pass away. And we hope to be with God forever. Those are our three bullet points. We hope for a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible says it's coming. The verse that I quote, verse 1 of chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now John has a vision of coming down from heaven, not of us being raptured into some uh, spiritual realm, but he has the kingdom of God, the city of God, coming down from heaven as a bride made ready for her husband. And the images are really beautiful. He sees the people of God as a city. We know in John 14, in my father's house are many mansions. In, the, in those mansions also, there must be houses and apartments and everything else because now he calls the people of God a city. That's where we're going to be. And that city is as beautiful as a bride. A beautiful bride. When you think about that, you realize not all cities are beautiful. You know, there are 8,400 cars stolen a year in Memphis, 8,401 trucks stolen this year, Matthew would say. But there are places you just don't go in cities. They're, they're ugly. You know, you, you can talk about any city. I can remember years ago we were unpacking our bags to go to General Assembly at Philadelphia, and I can't mock the guy's accent there in Philly, but he told us to stay away from places that were unlit. You know, stay on this street. Uh, cities are not usually described as beautiful because they're pockets of ugliness of all kind, but this city of God, this city of God's people is like a bride. A bride in all her beauty. You know, just last week we had a wedding here. I stood up front with Josh and Eugenie came down the aisle in her beautiful dress. And I asked Josh, had he seen her before in the dress? He said, no, we're very traditional. I don't want to see her until she's back there. And then when he saw her, he beamed. I had a friend of mine say that he did a wedding where the bride had to come in a side door like that, and while everybody was standing, she uh, she walked behind the crowd and said the husband-to-be got so excited, he ran down the aisle to meet her. He couldn't see her back there. 
You know, you, as the old saying goes, there's never been an ugly bride. Because that love makes her beautiful. And what John describes here is this city will be beautiful. It will be a new city. A new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And the word new, there are two different Greek words for new. There's nuos, which new in time and space. I got a new truck. I used to have a, I really didn't get a new truck. But anyway, you could say I got a new truck. I, I used to drive Chevrolets all the time. Now I drive a Dodge. It's brand new. That's not the word used here. The word you hear is kainos. Kainos means renewed, restored, transformed. It's the old made new and like new. You know what I mean? It, it, and because of that, that renewed thing takes on memories that come with it. And in that newness, you have some oldness that kind of passes away that makes this new vehicle so much better. Sarah's dad drove a, I want to say it was a Chevrolet probably in the 1960s. And when he died, he was still driving it. The color of it was a pecan sap white. He didn't park it in the garage. He parked it under a tree and it kind of, you know, it he wasn't the one to be washing and waxing a truck, you know. And so when he died, he had this pecan sap white truck, and it probably the floorboard in the, the bed of the truck was probably made out of wood and needed repair. And we never thought of that truck for years, years and years. And then one Thanksgiving day, Sarah's brother Newland drove up in that truck, and it was bright, shiny white. He had cleaned the engine. There was no oil anywhere. You could, we popped the hood and looked at it. And the back in the back, the kids, the grandkids could all pile in it for a picture because the floor was solid now. It was a renewed truck. And the fact that it had all of that history with it made it even more valuable. That's the idea of heaven. It's not new things. It's all things made new. Think about that. Not new things. You know, at Christmas, they always come up with some new toy, you know. You don't know what it's going to be. It's just nothing like But, But this is not like that. This is something that's been transformed and renewed and restored and redeemed. And that city will be much like the cities we have. It'll have roads and gates and walls and rivers running through it. It'll be a physical city. There'll be food there. It talks about the wedding banquet of the lamb. There will be animals there. The lion will lay down with the lamb. There will be everything. There'll be lakes and rivers and streams and all kinds of things that we're used to that have now everything's taken away that's bad about them. And they're renewed. And it has to be that way because in the new heaven and the earth, we will be physical. Jesus was raised from the dead, bodily raised from the dead. He was the first fruit, which means every fruit that comes after him will be just like that. We talked about that on Easter. You pick a tomato off this plant. That's the first tomato. The second tomato will look just like the first tomato, and the third one, and the fourth one, and the fifth one. Not identical, but they'll be the same type. 
Jesus had a body and he dared Thomas to touch his hands and his side and he told Mary, don't hang to my feet, I've not resurrected yet. He walked with the disciples, he talked with them, he ate supper with them. And yet he could walk through doors and be undis- he had a body. It was a spiritual body, it was a body, but we will have a body. And we will live in paradise. I was thinking about my Old Testament class, Old Testament biblical theology I took under Meredith Klein had tremendous impact on my theology, tremendous impact on my theology. And in taking Old Testament biblical theology, we stayed basically in three chapters. Chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis. And then when we went to the New Testament, we stayed in three chapters. Revelation 20, 21, and 22. And what he said is the Bible is kind of like an inclusio. It starts with paradise, and then paradise is lost. And then in the end, paradise will be regained. And everything in between is working towards that regaining of paradise. Where we will be with God without any sin. That city has no sea. Now that kind of bothers you. You love to go to the beach. You know, you love the sand and build the sand castles and get stung by the jellyfish and get sunburned. Anyway, most of, and you say, no sea, you know. I love. These are images. When you look at the image of sea in the Bible, the sea is usually a dangerous, mysterious, threatening, fearful thing. It rages and it foams and it roars and it's, you throw people overboard and they get swallowed by a fish. And that's where the enemy comes from. That's where the storms come from. And this city will have no threat. No threat. There won't be any of that there. There'll be walls for safety and the gates will be open where people can come in because there are no bad folks trying to get in. There will be real shalom. All things are being made new and will be new things things like a new thing and the old things have passed away the old order of things are gone death and mourning and pain and crying there will be a heavenly subtraction you know in seminary we jokingly talked about a backdoor revival you know what a backdoor revival is that's when your troublemakers leave We've never had any troublemakers leave, but the joke is that, you know, that that's a revival. It brings, it brings peace to the place. Well, God has a backdoor revival because he removes certain things. He doesn't allow them there. And one of them is death. Death is the ultimate curse of sin. God told Adam and Eve that in the day you eat this fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll die. And they ate it, and they didn't die physically, but they died spiritually, and they were separated from God. And when they did die, their souls were separated from not only their friends and their families, their bodies were separated from their soul. And, and death, is, death is a separation And the second death is a separation eternally from God. And Christians don't face the second death. But there's no death. 
There's no funeral homes. There's no standing by a bed waiting for your loved one to take their last. There's no graveyards. There, there are no tombstones. It's gone forever. And it's replaced by life. And they're healing in the leaves of the trees, it says. Mourning is gone. The grief, I think the grief of mourning here is talking about the grief that's caused by that death, that separation. Not just the, uh, the, the grieving itself, but the emotional pain, the loneliness. Jesus mourned at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus wept. He wept knowing that he would raise him from the dead. He, know, he, he knew that Lazarus was a believer and he would not die forever. But he wept because of uh, the, the damage that sin could do to a person and to a family and to a community. And that death was a last enemy to be defeated and it wasn't defeated yet. And Jesus wept. He mourned. You know... Uh, there's this crazy idea sometimes among Christians that we don't cry at funerals. You know, we have this hope. We don't grieve with people without hope. You can have hope and tears at the same time. And pain has gone away. Not just physical pain, but emotional pain. Spiritual pain. Can you think about things that cause pain. You know, I thought about pain, a toothache. Sorry, Jason, no dentist there filling teeth. No earaches, kids, no sore throats, no cuts and bruises, no broken bones, no appendicitis, no gallbladder attacks, no cancer, no arthritis or gout, no back pain, no sciatica. No pain. No pain from rejection or loneliness or guilt or being left out. No hurt feelings. No failure. No disappointment. It's gone. Forever gone. And then it says that Jesus says no, no tears. He will wipe all our tears from our eyes. There will be no more crying. R.C. Sproul said there was a bully in his neighborhood and he said the bully would always beat him up and he said I would run home and he said and I would run to my mama. It's hard to imagine R.C. Sproul running to his mama but anyway, you know, as a little kid running to his mama he said my mom would be in the kitchen and she would take her apron, the end of it, and she would wipe away his tears. And he said his dad would say, you better not come in here crying again. You go sock that guy in the nose. You know, that's the reason they run to their mama instead of their daddy. You know? But how many times have I seen a mom kneel down and take their thumb and wipe those tears away? That's the image. God wipes away our tears and they never come back. They never come back. It's an image that's unbelievable. They're forever gone. And the reason they're forever gone is because the curse is gone. You see that in 22 and verse 3. There is no longer any curse. 
He's talking about Genesis 1, 2, and 3 again, the curse when Adam and Eve sinned that God not only called them together and clothed them, He, he put a curse on them. Not a blessing, but a curse. And He told man that now you'll make a living by the sweat of your brow. The, the earth will fight back. You'll have thorns and thistles and weeds. And He told the women that you will have pain in your childbirth. There's pain in life. And he told the creation that you'll be full of thorns and thistles. And he told Satan that you'll have to crawl on your belly from now on. Which means he probably wasn't crawling on his belly then. It's part of the curse. But there's no curse. There's no pain. There's no fighting back in the garden. And it says that not only do we long for that, it says creation stands up on its tippy toes, one translation, looking for the day when it will be redeemed. And all of this points to the cross. All of this points to the Christmas hymn. Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. He came to make His blessings known. How far? As far as the curse is found. Jesus' blessings will take away every part of the curse and there will be no curse anymore. He died our death. By His pain we are healed. By His being forsaken we are welcomed into heaven. Because He was thirsty on the cross we are satisfied forever. Because He mourned the absence of God we will always know the presence of God. And because of Jesus the curse has been taken away. Cursed is he who hangs on the tree. The cross is our hope for all eternity. And then the last thing we hope, we're certain, will be with the Lord. All things will be new. The old will be taken away. But God will be with His people. He will dwell with His people. God's people. God's city. God's bride. And the promise of God from Genesis to Revelation is, I will be your God and you'll be my people. And now God will be with His people. And the glory of heaven, the glory that makes it not need a light, not need a lamp, not need a sun, not need the moon, because the glorious presence of God is its light. God's presence is heaven. On this Father's Day, let me be personal for a second. Y'all know my dad was my hero. He changed uh, his life when he was about 40, I guess. And we had a great relationship, and we buried him at Brandywine, uh, Shelton Cemetery. Several months later, uh, we went back home. Drove up, and the house looked just like it always did, you know. Just a ranch-style simple house with a long front porch on the front of the house and two rocking chairs and a swing. And that's where we'd drink our morning coffee and our afternoon coffee, and that's where we had all our conversations. And then behind the house was a lake that Daddy would fish in. And I remember my brother Harry Ray, as my dad got older, he wanted to put a director's chair in the boat. You know what a director's chair is in the boat? Well, Harry Ray didn't think ahead and when daddy leaned over it dumped both of them in the lake and they were treading water until Harry said hey daddy put your foot down it's only like five feet here so anyway 
All those memories came flooding back. But there was something missing. It was Dad. It's never been the same. So you can have golden streets and gates of pearl and you can have all those sapphires and diamonds and all those other things I can't pronounce or remember. But if you didn't have God, it wouldn't be heaven. There's no temple there because every place you go, God is there and He's worthy of worship. It's like, I can't describe it, but it's like looking out there and you see a beautiful mountain and you look over here and you see a great waterfall and you look over here and you see a beautiful sunset and you look over here and you see this crystal white snow that covers everything. And everywhere you look, everywhere you cast your eye makes you break out in worship because God has given you such a place like this. It's marvelous. Everything and everywhere we worship God, even as we do the tasks that are assigned to us. But not everybody's there. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic art, the idolaters, all liars, they'll be assigned to the burning lake of fire. And what Jesus says is, make sure your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Make sure you drink from the living water. Make sure you eat from the tree that heals. Make sure that you're worshiping the only one and true God. Uh, What do you think it means to be have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. In Roman times, if you were a citizen of Rome, your names were written down in a book. So that's probably the image. There's some images of books of life and books of recorded tears in the Old Testament. This idea is probably a citizenship. How do you know you're a citizen of heaven? How do you know your name's written in the Lamb's book of life? Well, you can make it hard, but let's make it easy. Those who know eternal life, what? They believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever loves the Lord, hates their sin, will be there. Clint talked about it in his class today. There are many ways to share the gospel uh, there are lots of ways. You know, you can do the EE. Do you know without a shadow of doubt where you'll spend eternity? And if they say yes, you go, well, why would you think you'd go to heaven? And what's the answer? But to join this church, you have to answer the ABCs, the Book of, Com- the book of Church Order requires us to ask five questions, but the first three have to do with salvation. Do you admit that you're a sinner and that your sin deserves the wrath and curse of God? And do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope for salvation? And do you trust Him alone? And do you commit your life, see, to serve Him forever? And if that is your sincere desire, 
I really believe I can say your name would be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope of heaven. Thank you for the promise that one day the curse will be gone and all that's sad will become untrue. And as C.S. Lewis said, that heaven will work backwards. It will redeem even the bad things will have shown to be for our good and the painful things brought about our salvation and our sanctification. And we thank you for that hope. May it make us hopeful, holy, happy people. And if people have not put their faith in Christ, may they admit their sin even now. And may they believe that Jesus died for him. May they commit their lives to serve him forever. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.